0: Honestly, I don't think so. Honestly, I don't think so. I think the biggest challenge facing the pipeline right now is the constitutional challenge from the First Nations on that question of free, prior, and informed consent and on the consultation. And as I said, the Prime Minister's was inadequate, and I think that will be enough to tie it up. I think one of the things that's gotten lost is that it's become a battle between the Alberta government and the federal government and the BC government. But the people who are actually disrupting on the front lines aren't there as agents of the BC government. And that's not going to go away even if the BC government signs off on the pipeline. So, I think there's too many possibilities for it to go wrong for it to ever actually get built. Thank you. We'll start off with easy questions and yeah. work up. yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm Don Peel. Uh, I have a couple of questions. I guess the first one, I, I think it was Peter Lougheed that said that we should actually be refining uh, the oil here and shipping it out. I mean, we, we have this mentality since the beginning of time that we always ship our resources out and then buy them back. So <clears throat> I guess that, has anybody looked at the that aspect of actually uh, refining here to ship out at a higher price? price, um, and also, what, what how, what's uh, Parkland's role in, say, lo- lobbying government? Um, or is there a lobby question. regards to that? Yeah. Sure. Um,
0: it wasn't just Laheed that historically said we should refine it here, too. Um, it was also uh, Rachel Notley when she was in opposition, Brian Mason when he was in opposition, the Alberta Federation of Labour has repeatedly said we should refine it here. Um, so yeah i mean the studies have been done the work's been done what happened is that because our industry is market driven and it's it's all private ownership the big players that would build a refinery in a market-based system have built the refineries in the gulf coast and it's not economical for them to build refineries in alberta so the studies have been done better jobs better price john horgan has said if you ship refined product to us down this pipeline, we're happy, right? We just don't want the dilbit. The challenge is that this, at this point, would have to be a government-led refining project. And as much as it's in name a new Democrat government, there's still a reluctance to say a government is going to build and own a refinery in Alberta or numerous refineries in Alberta to get this product out. So that's the challenge. I mean, the studies are there. It's, it's better pricing. They're longer-term jobs, they're better jobs, they're closer to home, right? Both on the jobs front and on the pricing front, it makes sense to do that and instead of the, the, the Ralph Klein rip-it-and-ship-it model. And he was the one that really, really kind of dug into that rip-it-and-ship-it model. But it's a big political step right now for a government to take on. In terms of Parkland, we don't lobby. We don't do advocacy. Um, the target audience for our work is not government. The target audience for our work is you folks in a way of getting people to better engage with the decisions that impact their lives. Uh, yeah, we're not interested in, in lobbying and advocacy of that regard. We do research. We do it in a way that it can reach people and people can understand it, and use that to make their decisions about where, how they're going to vote, about their positions on public policy and those kind of things.
1: Thank you. My name is Klaus Jericho. Mr. Akuna, thank you for your beautiful review. Uh, I have heard a lot about pipelines and and, and so on, but you know, I don't know what they physically look like. Can you tell me, for example, this proposed line now, that's going to go right in the same hole as the previous one? And then how many pipes are actually going to Vancouver and how many pipes are coming back to, to, uh, to Alberta? And also the bitumen, it has to be heated and has to be pumped. Can you tell me something as to what the physical plant looks like, please?
0: I, I can certainly try that and there's probably people in the room who know this better than I do, uh, m- not being a, a pipeline engineer. Um, the existing line carries just over 300,000 barrels a day up to the coast. Some of it is above ground, some of it is below ground. The new pipe would run alongside it and be twice as large, so it's going to triple capacity to just over 900,000 um, barrels per day. It's, most of this one is going to run above ground particularly because it's running through some very sensitive areas to the Rocky Mountains. And in case of spill or rupture, it becomes incredibly complicated for them to find and repair an underground leak. So most of this will run, particularly through the the dangerous areas, will run above ground. So it's one existing pipeline that had been Kinder Morgan's and now is ours. And then this one will run pretty much right alongside it, right up to the coast. The stuff that goes in it is diluted bitumen they, uh, the the bitumen won't move on its own. It's too thick, right? So they dilute it uh, with a product that's essentially gasoline. So it's essentially a gasoline that they pour into the bitumen and use that to flow. They have pump stations along the way that help it move out. So we bring in, we actually import refined gasoline and then put it into this pipeline to uh, dilute the bitumen and help it move out to the coast. No, it it moves as one product. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You made me need to go back yeah. to the mic. So the the question is whether that gasoline comes back to Alberta. That same gasoline doesn't. Once it's been mixed in with the bitumen, it follows the bitumen all along the way. Wherever it gets refined, they pull that gasoline out. They sell it back to us. We bring it into Alberta. We put it in a pipeline with more bitumen. And the provincial government is now working on a project uh, to look at partial upgrading where they can get to the bitumen, not to the gasoline point, like not to an end product, but where they can refine it enough that it'll move more freely on its own uh, to avoid having to constantly be buying that condensate, the, the gasoline-type stuff.
2: Uh, Lauren Fitch, uh, Ricardo, thank you for your insights, uh, you and the Parkline Institute. What does the Trans Mountain Initiative tell us about the future of evidence-based decision-making? And are we uh, doomed to a spiral of uh, faith-based decision-making or fairy tales?
0: I, I mean, I think increasingly that's becoming the case, and, and we often hear the expression fake news, right, these days. Um, our politics have become, over the last 20 years, I think quite purposefully, much more populist and much more about feelings than about actual ideas and facts, which is a struggle for us at Parkland, because uh, we're an organization that works on, on studies and facts. but. Um, I don't for a moment believe that this government in particular has put all their eggs in this pipeline basket because they've done the work on the economy, on the jobs and all of that. I believe that this government has put its eggs in this pipeline basket because of the populist tendencies, because of the need to show populist support for the industry um, and because of some political math rather than energy economics math. So I think increasingly, the political realm has become so overblown with rhetoric and yelling and name calling that the debate has dropped to a level where we're not actually considering because political calculations aren't made based on somebody having passed good policy, right? They're based on people having passed policy that I don't agree with. And I think that's, that's a big difference. So yeah, that's, that's a problem going forward for a democracy.
3: Hi, Ricardo. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you very much for coming and speaking to SACPA. Usually I don't take cold showers in the morning, but your talk was like an ice-cold shower. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I've got two questions for you. One is, I heard that we have two refineries in the north of Alberta. Um, Perhaps they're refining for airplane gas, but... That's what I had heard, so maybe you could comment on that. And um, with this situation with the U.S. and problems with the uh, administration down there, do you think this is a time to maybe revisit the concept of sending Alberta oil east rather than west so that we would be secure and not have to rely on the U.S. for a market?
0: Um, we do have uh, refineries in Alberta, so that's not to imply that we have no refineries. We do have refineries, they just can't handle the volume that's produced in Alberta, right? The existing volume, never mind future growth volumes. So um, there were refineries that were built along when the oil sands projects were initially being built. A lot of them included refineries. We've got in um, the east end of Edmonton, we've got Refinery Row. So we, we do have that infrastructure. What happened is mid-'90s, late '90s, as bitumen really started to take off and we started to move into boom mode, um, we started producing way more than the refineries could handle. And instead of having at that point in time a concerted economic development strategy that looked at refining and looked at you know as Laheed had done, saying to these companies, if you're not refining it here, you can't dig it up here, right?" <laughs> Um, we came into this model of of rip it and ship it under the Klein years. And the model was, doesn't care about refining capacity, we're going to dig out as much as we can where the price is right now, we're going to dig it all up and send it out as is. And through that process, it became cheaper for the companies to build refineries on the Gulf Coast because they've got direct access to export markets right there, and and that became the trajectory. Um, moving oil east versus west our former director at the the parkland institute gordon laxer has done a tremendous amount of work on this on questions of national energy security um, on questions of why uh, quebec and ontario get most of their oil from volatile middle eastern countries instead of from alberta right and he has presented and you can find them on the parkland website He has presented a number of studies that show how we could use a national energy strategy to actually start the process of weaning ourselves from fossil fuels, right? So, so that work has been done, and, and maybe now is the time to, to you know, revive it and reconsider it. One of the challenges we have is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which currently compels us to ship a certain amount of our product south of the border, right? We are tied into shipping our average shipping over the course of the last 36 months, that proportion, we are tied into shipping that much to the U.S. going forward. So until we can, you know, Donald Trump might be doing this for us, until we can get rid of that proportionality clause of shipping to the U.S., then it's very difficult for us to actually develop a national energy security strategy in Canada because we have no control over how much of our oil we can keep here.
4: Thank you for bringing your information to us. I'm Bev Trainer, and my question to you is in regards to a statement you made at the beginning of your talk, and that was that we do not know if this product will will sink or float in the ocean. And my question is, I cannot believe that this much money and this much time gets spent on something that a simple grade six experiment could give us the answer to. I'm coming from an educational background Mm -hmm. where I see a great big bowl of salt water and some of this bitumen on the top and does it sink or swim. So maybe you can answer that.
0: Sure. The the information being put forth originally by Kinder Morgan was that it will float. And that information was based on, on exactly that type of experiment. A bunch of salt water in a big tank You put some diluted bitumen on it, and you see what happens with it, right? The counter to that is that you cannot, within that kind of closed system, account for the tidal movements off the coast. So until, you know, and so there exists, and there's scientific studies does to this, that there exists the possibility that with those tidal movements off the coast, the product will ultimately sink. And sadly, without isolating a chunk of the coast and dumping a bunch of diluted bitumen into it, that's one of the things that we actually may never know until it happens, right? So that's, that's... But you're right. So the Kinder Morgan submission included studies to say in an isolated big tank full of the saltwater concentration that we have off the BC coast, it floats. When presented with the question of what happens with taking into account the tidal movements, they said that's beyond the scope of our studies. Um, if you ask the federal government about it now and say what happens with diluted the bitumen, they will say, we think it floats, we don't know, but we've allocated one and a half billion dollars to a recovery funding off the coast, right? Can I just say one, Would you go back to the mic, please, Deb? <laughs> and we'll take the next question and then give you a chance to ask again, so.
5: Hi, Ricardo, uh, my name is Shannon Little. Uh, thank you for giving us some clear information today, and I'm wondering if you can provide further clarity about something, and that is the cost of purchasing this pipeline to the public. So we've heard values, I think, $4.7 billion, $7.8 billion, over $11 billion. How much are we actually paying for this pipeline? And then the second part of this is there are several agreements that have been signed with First Nations communities in the path of the pipeline. Um What are we still liable for paying out these agreements? Is this included in this calculation? And do we have the governance structure federally to be able to handle making these kind of payments based on promises that a private corporation made? Right?-
0: Okay. Um, so the cost is a big one. Kinder Morgan had estimated in their original submissions, that the pipeline would be a $7.8 billion project to build. That's what they said the cost of building the pipeline would be. We bought the pipeline for $4.7 billion, right? But we didn't just buy the pipeline. We bought all of Kinder Morgan's Canadian assets. So that includes valuation of the existing pipeline. Those assets were valued at market worth about 3.3 billion dollars. So we paid a one and a half billion dollar profit, essentially, to Kinder Morgan on those assets. I'm just gonna toss out the numbers because the short answer is we don't know, okay? Kinder Morgan has already sunk about a billion dollars worth of costs into building the pipeline. So theoretically, we're going to need to pay another 6.8 billion to finish it. So already we're looking at about 11 billion with the purchase price plus the remaining $6.8 billion, right? Those cost calculations were made six years ago now. So the odds that a $7.8 billion project budgeted for six years ago will cost $7.8 billion today are very slim, right? The costs will go up. So it is likely that we will wind up paying significantly north of $11 billion for this completed pipeline. All of the agreements that Kinder Morgan had signed to get the pipeline built now transfer legally over to the federal government, so they have full responsibility for paying out the community benefit plans that uh, Kinder Morgan had signed on to with the First Nations along the route.
2: Okay, Bev, round two here.
0: Oh,
4: (laughs) thanks. My rebuttal is they do experiments all the time on a small scale to do with waves and tsunamis. Rent a wave pool or something. Do something on a small scale where they can test what that material will do in regards to the waves. It just doesn't add up that they haven't got answers to that.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And you know what? It's entirely possible that somebody does have answers for it, but it's proprietary information that they're not sharing with the public.
2: Hi, my name is Peter Beal. And uh, uh, have you considered in your thing, like, when you say, we, it, well, we won't meet our Paris uh, targets as Canada. Have you considered that it's all, all one globe? Canada can't be isolated and that India is planning on building a 1,000 coal-fired power plants. I mean, if we can get them natural gas or oil, wouldn't that improve the, the global picture of, on pollution? That's one question, if you want to mm-hmm. answer that. Uh, well, I'll leave it at that one. Oh, okay. yeah, the other one. Uh, what about by 2050, we'll have 10 billion people on the planet, and there's no way right now that we could feed them. That means more starvation, more, uh, more famines, and that we need energy to produce more food to supply that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not passing judgment on the Paris Agreement. I'm not saying whether it's a good agreement or a bad agreement. My, my, my comments are made on the fact that our government signed this agreement in good faith and made a commitment in good faith that we would meet those targets. And that if we don't meet those targets, then we're violating an international commitment we made. And that's, that's it, right? Whether it's a good thing to surpass the targets, whether you think we can meet them either way, pipeline or no pipeline, right? I, I'm not passing judgment on any of that. Um, I think that if, we, if our elected representatives signed an agreement and said we would do something before the rest of the world, then we have a commitment to do everything we can to make that happen. Um, yeah, uh, it, as the population grows, certainly our agriculture is, is very energy-based and very emissions-based right now. I think that speaks to the urgency of uh, investing in an energy transition so that we can continue to feed people without uh, microwaving us off the planet completely. I mean, I think, I, I think that speaks to the urgency of the need for an energy transition, not of the need to find a way to get more bitumen out of the ground and to the world.
1: Uh, I'm Trevor Page. After listening to the negatives that you started in started with, the positive sounded very negative too. <laughs> in fact, the positives sounded as though you were just building on the negatives. Um, I was going to ask you whether you had discussed um, the findings of your presentation, or or the the nub of your presentation, with the finance minister of Alberta or with the premier. And perhaps you could comment on that, even though I understood you to say Mm -hmm. that Parkland is not an advocacy organisation. I mean, with those facts out there, with those figures, I mean... What can the finance minister or the say? And then you say that you don't think that the pipeline will be built because of protests by First Nations. But the, pri- the Prime Minister has put himself behind it. In fact, he's even prepared to buy it. And he says all of the environmental um, reviews have been carried out, and it's in the national interest. I mean, are we concluding that Canada cannot make policy and implement policy? It seems ridiculous. So, let me just summarize the question. What is the reaction of the finance minister and the premier to those facts that you've articulated today?
0: Um. I don't get a lot of face time with the premier and the finance minister. They're both, no, no, but they're, and, and they're both friends. Like, I, I know them both, and we've had these conversations socially, not officially. Um, they, they, they very much focus on the fact, and, and uh, the environment minister from Lethbridge has, has said the same thing again, this fundamental belief that the industry will be able to magically and drastically reduce its emissions Per barrel of oil between now and then there's there's no path for it there's no trajectory uh, i've also heard that they're not interested in reduction targets right they're interested in balancing environmental action with economic growth they don't want to set targets for emissions reductions they don't want to set timelines for emission reductions. they don't want to send time set timelines for transition off fossil fuels so um we're not getting the chance to engage directly. I do know this. Six weeks ago, two months ago, I wrote a blog on the Parkland Institute page that responded to some memes that the government had put out. Included in them was a 15,000 jobs figure, right? And I said what I just said now, that that 15,000 job figure is made up. It's not grounded in anything. It's just a made-up number. Uh, I know from other friends that this actually got in front of the Premier, and the Premier has stopped using the 15,000 jobs figure. She now speaks to thousands of jobs, right? So, so there's some, there's some responsiveness there to the idea that these aren't grounded in anything, but um, still the belief is that we need to, because it's in the public interest, it's in the public interest, we need to plow through. Um, Sorry, what was the other half of your question? Oh, the United, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, This is something we've signed on to, and the the articles I'll read you the I mean there's an article on infrastructure, which requires prior informed consent and consultation, right? Um, but there is an article too on government policy, and this is this is the quote. This is what it actually says in Article 19 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. States shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free prior and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. We've agreed to a nation-to-nation relationship with First Nations, and we've agreed to saying if you don't consent in a free and consultative way to the policies that we want to implement, we will not implement. So the short answer to your question is yes. That's what it means.
1: Okay. We're getting close to our last question.
6: My name is Andrew Blair, and I would like to uh, kind of follow up on the question that Peter Beale asked. Um, he was asking pretty, his question pretty much from the point of view of a world citizen. And uh, y- your perspective has been giving us uh, the for and against uh, yep. as Canadian or Albertan right. citizens, which we all are, of course, but we are also world citizens. My question is this. Um, might an an additional supply of oil or uh, uh, fossil fuel energy on the world market be uh, a factor in uh, diminishing the drive towards war on the part of some countries in the world in order to secure their energy supply?
0: Interesting. On that global basis, um, yeah, we hear that a lot, right? That we're a secure, safe, democratic supplier of a product that the world increasingly wants and that having our product on the international market is actually a positive, right? Which I agree with. We are that safe supplier. On that global scale, we've known for a very long time that because of the free market models, we are at the mercy of OPEC in terms of how much of our market, how much of our product gets sold by other countries, how much of our product gets bought by other, whether our product is developed at all or not, right? So, in theory, yes, of course, if the world can replace conflict oil, for lack of a better term, with Canadian oil, yeah, that would help ease those conflicts. The flip side of that is the majority of the oil that's conflict oil that's being fought over, that's resulting in wars, all of that, is still the very light, sweet, crude that you can poke a hole in the desert and find it there. And it doesn't require the level of investment or the level of work to get at, and results in far fewer emissions than our bitumen. So there's a give-take there, right?
6: Yeah, um, just a follow-up question. uh, Very, very, very briefly. Okay. I agree uh, about the light sweet uh, Mm -hmm. crude uh, at the current time, but there may also be considerations for the very long term and secure energy supplies for the very long term.
0: I think that all needs to be done in a context of, of a strategic discussion around how we transition eventually as a world off this product, and that's not happening, right? Either locally or internationally last question. Um,
4: Hi, Ricardo, I'm Maria Fitzpatrick and I'm part of this government. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, certainly I've been challenged by everything you've said today. uh, And I've taken note and I'll be having some discussion with my colleagues about it. Uh, But when you talk about the reduction of the hydrocarbons, uh, did you take into consideration the Sturgeon Redwater Refinery Which, in each phase, uh, reduces emissions, CO two emissions, by approximately thirty five hundred tons a day for each phase, and they're in phase two right now.
0: Well, and this is, uh, and that speaks to the benefits of building more refining capacity here that can accommodate that that kind of emissions reduction, right? Yeah. Okay.
2: Thank you. Let's thank uh, Ricardo Acuña.